Welcome to The Table Podcast, where we discuss issues of God and culture. Brought to you by Dallas Theological Seminary. Welcome to The Table. We discuss issues of God and culture, and our topic today is Holy Sexuality and the Gospel. I'm Daryl Bach, Executive Director of Cultural Engagement at the Hendricks Center at Dallas Theological Seminary. And my guest is, um, I can refer to him as a veteran of foreign wars. He's done this table podcast before for us. Christopher Yuan, who is Professor at Large in Biblical Studies at Moody in uh, in uh, Moody Bible Institute in Chicago. Welcome, Christopher. It's really a pleasure to have you back with us. Well, I'm so grateful to be on again, and so grateful for your ministry, Dr. Dr. Bach. Really appreciate you. Well, our topic, as I said, is Holy Sexuality and the Gospel, which actually is the title of a book uh, that Chris has written, and the subtitle is Sex, Desire, and Relationships Shaped by God's Glory. So obviously, we're going to be talking about the whole area of sexuality, and uh, some of which is LBGTQ stuff. I, I call it alphabet soup. I mean, every time I go to it, the alphabet gets longer. But uh, um, but uh, on a more serious note, this really is an important discussion for the church, and uh, it 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 wa- walks into an area that's very much tied to people's identities, people's passions. Um, the way in which they see themselves and live. And so, um, Chris, it really is a pleasure to have you uh, take us through this. And I, I, there's a question I always ask at the beginning of every podcast, which is, how did you get into this gig? Why, why, are, you, why are you talking about this, and, uh, and why is it important to you? Well, I think that's a great place to start, because um, a lot of people can uh, have studied this, and a lot of people have dug into God's Word, um, study this using other disciplines. And uh, for me, I, I have done that, but also this is something that's very personal for me. Um, not being in a raised, raised in a Christian home, I wrestled myself with sexuality. I came out to my parents. That actually brought them to faith amazingly, which mm. is interesting because, you know, Daryl, we hear the narrative today from Hollywood, from media, that Christian parents cannot love their gay children. But I had the exact exact opposite experience. My parents weren't Christian. They rejected me. They became believers, and they knew they could do nothing on the men to love me. And in essence, I went kind of a very dark path, um, uh, not only involving you know sexual promiscuity, but also, unfortunately, drugs. I was kicked out of dental school as a graduate school. I was getting my doctorate, and... Um, moved to Atlanta I, from Chicago. I was going to school in Louisville, moved to Atlanta, and eventually I was a, a, arrested. And it was there, that was the beginning of my faith journey. After years of my parents praying and fasting, she fasted every Monday for seven years. But anyway, it's my personal experience of uh, coming to this, uh, not only through biblical theological understanding, but also just experiential. And, and this is not something that's foreign to me or abstract, but it's something very real um, and I talk about that in my first book that I co-authored with my mom, Out of Our Country, A Gay Son's Journey to God, A Broken Mother's Search for Hope. And I introduced this concept of holy sexuality, and I knew that I needed to flesh that out and show how that that our 
sexuality, sex desires, and relationships are really shaped by God's grand story. That it, I really wanted to name it, it's shaped by systematic and biblical theology, but my <laughs> publisher shot me down. I don't know why. <laughs> I, I think I can figure out why they did that. <laughs> yeah, right. Um, well, I, I, th- I think I remember enough of your story to say when you were arrested, uh, you got the chance to make one call, and you ended up calling your mom. Is that it? do I remember that correctly? Yes. Well, I, I actually first before <laughs> I called her, called all my so-called friends. Okay. No one answered, uh-huh. and, uh, and so she and she called the. Uh, she was the bottom of the, I, the last person, and and she's you know I was expecting an earful, and she simply said, "Are you okay?" Hmm. And um, I think maybe in her old self, she would have maybe given her given me an earful, uh, but just by the grace of God, God gave her the words that I needed to hear at that moment, that um, just like Paul says in Romans 2.4, that is God's kindness that leads to repentance. And that was just kind of the beginning of me recognizing that. Hmm. Well, that's quite a story, and of course it's tied to the first book that you wrote, Out of a Far Country. Um, let's, let's dive into this topic, and I'm going to try and come at this kind of from the, from the other way in. Which sure. is that oftentimes when we get into these discussions, the appeal is made that um, that someone who has same-sex attraction to be, how can I say this, um, be uh, relegated to a life of loneliness is the way this is painted. It's the way it's yep. framed, and that and that this is somehow unjust. Uh, not just of the church, but in some ways unjust of God. And then the way it gets flipped is, and of course, God wouldn't want uh, anyone to live through that that absence of love, that love is one of the most important um, sustaining virtues of life. Yeah. And to be cut off from this is somehow inappropriate. And so now, in, in one way or another, it might not be said quite this directly, but uh, now we know better that this limitation is a limitation that we shouldn't allow. And then there are other things that come on top of it I'm sure we'll talk about down the road. So just why don't you start there um, sure. with, with that way in. And what you, how you view it? Well, well, I think uh, Dr. Bach, you having been in these conversations regarding culture and, and theology, I mean, you really hit the nail on the head. That today, when it comes to sexuality, uh, those in the gay community it really kind of dwind- kind of dwindles down to the main things. One, uh, this is the way they are. They're born that way. Uh, God created them that way. Um, and then to kind of have them deny who they are. To be relegated to a life of loneliness—that's unfair. So, so let me kind of tackle those two things, which I which I tackle in my book. Um, as a matter of fact, I, I essentially begin my book um, with tackling that part of who we are. Our, uh, who are we at our essence? And um, I, I I strongly believe that we can't understand human sexuality without beginning with theological anthropology. Mm-hmm. So, starting there, uh, yes. The, the Imago Dei concept is so key that everyone, whether one is, has come to Christ or not yet come to Christ, whether they are living in unrepentant sin or not, whether they identify as gay or not, everyone is created in image of God. And that's important, especially for those uh, sometimes very uh, strong, maybe evangelical Christians who hold strong to truth but don't get grace and demean uh, those in the gay community and don't see them as image bearers, so that's convicting for them. But as we talk about theological anthropology, we can't just end 
with the Imago Dei. I mean, obviously, Genesis 127, there's a lot of verses that follow that, particularly <laughs> Genesis chapter 3, yeah. which is the fall. Right. Understanding, uh, so particularly when I say we can't understand human sexuality without beginning with theological anthropology, it's not just the Imago Dei concept, but it's also the doctrine of sin. So the fall, original sin, what that means, and I, I've just found that there's so much misunderstanding when it comes to original sin, what that means, that we think that that is the actual sin of Adam and Eve, and it's not. It's the consequence of their actual sin, which has resulted in guilt, and which has resulted in also the fact that we are sinners by nature, like Augustine says, that we are unable to not sin, non-pacare. And so I think that's really important for us to understand that, because when we do, so exactly like you said, Dr. Bach, there's a sense when, you know, when people say, well, I'm born that way. Well, there's a sense where that is true. Not, and I wouldn't say that necessarily people are born gay, but I will say what Scripture says, that, that we are all, as David says in Psalm 51, that we are born into sin. So in essence, we all have that sin nature, and that we all have this propensity to sin. So the argument that Christians make, and of course, unbelievers, they, they make this argument, and that's understandable. But when Christians make, this, they make the assertion that, well, people are just born that way, it really belies a misunderstanding of the doctrine of sin, what we, you know, which is comprised of the, you know, theological anthropology, that understanding of humanity through the lens of God. So starting there is really important because we know that actually every one of us, we all are sinners by nature, and then later we become sinners by choice and by by our actions. Uh, and because of that, that is why all of the human race is in need of a redeemer. To redeem us from the bondage of sin. So beginning there, that's really important. Who are we? Uh, you know, I, I think um, having this concept of identity is so important because I really don't know of any other sin issue that we have conflated with personhood. For example, if you know an adulterer, if I call someone an adulterer, I don't view that as who they are, but what they do or what they are continuing to do. A liar. We wouldn't say that's who you are, but that's what they do. However, when it comes to sexuality, when we use this term, the world has conflated sexuality with who we are. And honestly, sexuality isn't who we are, it's how we are. And that's a big difference because then that's able to separate ontology with experience, especially with ethics. Um, and that was my whole world. When I said I am gay, I did not mean these are my experiences, or this is what I feel, or this is what I do. When I said I am gay years ago, and I don't use those terms anymore, because I think that has been confused with ontology, um, when I said I am gay, I meant this is who I was. And I think as Christians, we need to begin there, because when we interact with our gay neighbor or co-worker, before we can even talk about morality and ethics, we need to help them to separate their sexuality from who they are, their desires from who they are, their actions for their uh, same-sex behavior from who they are, because when it's all lumped together and we begin and say, you're, you know, what you're doing is simple, that's not what they hear. That's not what I heard. I heard that my whole person, no matter what I did, was uh, reprehensible before God. Um, and so I think that's important for us to, to know that. But then the other part where we talk about, well, it's unfair, is I think we have a really bad understanding of singleness. I have a, actually two chapters. My biggest 
chapters in my book is actually on singleness. And, mm. and I specifically use the word singleness as opposed to celibacy because I think that is what Paul is talking about in 1 Corinthians 7 when he says agamas, not married. I think the closest English word that we have for not married or unmarried is just simply single. It's, it's a state, not necessarily a calling. I don't believe that when Paul talks about first, in 1 first Corinthians 7, he's talking about a calling. If there's anything that's a calling right there in the middle of 1 Corinthians 7, it's actually a call to salvation. Uh, in other words, saying that no matter if you're uncircumcised or circumcised, no matter if you're married or unmarried, no matter if you're slave or free, none of those conditions really matter because what really matters is that you are saved, that that, that is your calling to Christ, and that everything else doesn't matter. So I think that I feel more comfortable just using the word single, but I have two chapters, and actually I have two chapters on a theology of marriage, two chapters on a biblical theology of singleness, very purposely because I think we've, we've distorted as Christians um, the meaning of a, a, a new covenantal understanding of being unmarried. Because in the old covenant, obviously, uh, being unmarried was not a positive thing. Uh, but then, and I don't know, I'm sure, Dr. Bach, you're familiar with Barry Danilak. I think he's he just was so influential with me helping to understand a, a proper biblical understanding of biblical theology of singleness. But um, his work I relied on a lot, and, and he basically kind of drew from the Old Testament and New Testament and, and helped us understand how uh, there is this uh, really wonderful understanding of singleness in light of the New Covenant, and especially um, understanding what family means as those of us who are redeemed, that that our true family isn't one bound by blood, physical blood, but our true family is bound by the blood of Christ, uh, that that's the true eternal family, which is the body of Christ, the, the, the church. Um, so understanding singleness in that way, especially in light of the consummation, right, God's grand story, creation, fall, redemption, consummation, understanding singleness in that light, we know that singleness is not a curse. Singleness is not um, maybe necessarily unfair. And, and, and this is also partially why I use the term holy sexuality, because I wanted to really elevate that. This is a standard not just for those who have same-sex attractions, but really those who uh, are human, <laughs> that, that holy sexuality is really good news for all. So singleness um, is not really um, a, a curse. Um, marriage does not have a monopoly on love, and I think that's really important that, um, that we are able to communicate that, especially as redeemed followers of Christ, that um, it is because of our faith that we know that, yes, marriage is a good thing, uh, it is something instituted by God, and it's a blessing, but also living as a single woman, as a single man, um, is also a good thing and is also a blessing. Yeah, in fact, the moment you mention that, the thing that immediately leaps to my mind is someone who's spent his life studying Jesus is Jesus was not married. And yet yes. I, I don't think we would say he was lonely. I don't think we would say he uh, missed out on on being loved and loving people. Um, and so uh, he was very, very engaged. My objection, my response to this, to this love and loneliness uh, claim is: is there are all kinds of ways to love, and there are all kinds of ways to deal with loneliness in this life. And uh, when we equate love with the right to sexuality, we actually con we're, we're conflating something else. 
that doesn't that doesn't necessarily belong together. I mean, my my parents love me immensely. Uh, I love my children immensely, but that has nothing to do with sexuality. Right and or romance. Yep. Exactly, and so, um, so I just think that that uh, th- there there's a whole construct there. I, I think it actually shows how pervasively a a a secular understanding of love has come into our conversation because we've elevated this to such a high level that it almost becomes connected to our identity in a way that it shouldn't. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. We really have, um, you know, I tell my students at Moody, love does not equal sex. Mm-hmm. The world elevates sex as one of the most intimate forms that two, you know, of relationship. That, that, that's two, you know, one of the most endearing ways that two people can connect. And I reject that. Honestly, mm-hmm. having been uh, very sexually active, you know, I know many people today who are sleeping together, having sex, and they don't love each other. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so love does not equal sex, of course. I mean, God intended sex to be enjoyed within the context of marriage of a husband and a wife, a wife and a husband loving each other. But sex is unfortunately uh, been misused and distorted in many ways. So sex is not equal love. Love does not equal sex. And I even kind of go on and say love is not equal to romance either. I mean, I know many people. I mean, it's springtime now, so I don't know what it's like at DTS. But, you know, at Moody Bridal Institute, spring is in the air. And so there's a lot of kids that are romantic. And I even think that some of those kids, you might be romantic. You might have those feelings. But I don't, I, I don't know if I'm really convinced that you actually really selfishly love that other individual um and even i mean so maybe not just picking on on moody but anywhere even even within the church people can be romantic but that not as equivalent to love and even let's just say romantic uh yes the romantic love between a husband and wife is something beautiful and that's what it's intended for uh but that relationship that beautiful relationship between a husband and a wife which is really uh, a shadow of the eternal reality as paul talks about in ephesians 5 of Christ and his bride, the church, that is not the only form of love. Just as you said, Dr. Bach, you and your children, mm-hmm. uh, you and your parents, that's love. Mm-hmm. And that's not a marriage relationship. And, and the, even there's something about a mother's love for her child that I think can sometimes even be longer lasting than some of the marriage relationships that we see in the world. So um, marriage definitely does not have a monopoly of love. It is certainly a form of uh a context in which love can occur, but not the only one. And yet, we find, for example, um, the Obergefell decision where Justice Kennedy wrote in his majority opinion, where he wrote at the very end of his majority opinion, he said something of the effect that marriage is the highest ideal of love. And I simply disagree. It mm-hmm. is a form of love. Um, it is 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 a way that love can be expressed as a context, but I, I don't see it as the highest, especially as one who holds up God's word to be true. Uh, I view God to be the highest ideal of love. Um, I view the the act of Christ going to the cross for us as the greatest expression, the epitome of love. Um, and uh, as good as marriage is, and we need to be careful not to go on either extreme, as sometimes we will either 
say it's, you know, people are trying to shun it or they're afraid of it, that's not good, but also then to elevate it almost to the point where we idolize it. And I really think that sometimes the most, most deceptive forms of idolatry is when we worship something good. Yeah, and in fact, if you think about it, and unfortunately this will sound like I'm abstracting it a little bit, which I don't want it to sound like, um, marriage and the love that you have in marriage is actually an exceptional form of love. Mm. It's unlike any other love relationship a person has. At least mm. it's designed to be that way. It's yeah. designed to be singular and exclusive. Mm. Amen. Okay? But there are a whole array of relationships that I have that are rooted and grounded in love that supply um, that, that supply uh, flourishing and worth to me that have nothing to do with my marriage. Yes. Uh, and, uh, you know, there are people that I've grown up with that I've been friends with since I was in elementary school, you know, um, and they supply a dimension in my life that's important, and, and that is, that's also a form of love. Yes. So, I, so I think what we've done is we've, we've zeroed in on this one thing that is, that is exceptional. Granted, for people who are married, it's very, very important. I'm not belittling it, yes. or like I say, of trying to abstract it out. But I am trying to say this is actually an exceptional category, but there are all kinds of forms of love that form and, and nurture a person that go – that operate outside that relationship and that can – can be a place where needs are met and people are sustained. And probably the hard part of this is that when we focus, or at least one aspect is, when we focus on marriage so exclusively, we put blinders on ourselves and the other ways in which we can be nurtured and encouraged by a whole array of people with whom we'll never be married. Yes, yes. And uh, and so I think that's an, that's an important part of this conversation, this initial part of this conversation as well. Yeah, yeah, you're right. And um, so, yeah, marriage is is in a, a, a very unique in a class of its own. Um, and uh, and I don't think that friendship is ever meant to replace marriage uh, or or to be tried as similar as marriage. I think that there can be uh, friendships that are unique in a sense, but they're not meant to be exclusive in the sense that marriage is meant to be exclusive. That's, That's right. just not how friendships were meant. So um, I don't think that there needs to be um, – I definitely need uh, brothers in the Lord who I am close with and intimate with, and um, uh, but I don't think it needs necessarily to be exclusive because life changes and my friends can change as well, and that's – in God's sovereignty is is a good thing. Um, I think you know we often lift up the quintessential example of David and Jonathan, but I do find it interesting that Scripture never calls them friends. I, mm. I just find that I just found that very interesting. Uh, the New Testament never, um, as Jesus was calling his disciples, uh, you know, to you know you know how to live and you know love one another. He never brings up Jonathan and David. I mean, and not to say if silence can't be. Uh, an argument for. I just find it interesting that uh, that it is, but we do find in the Old Testament where David and Jonathan are called uh, brothers. Mm -hmm. And I think then that, when we take that concept of the New Testament, boy, you find a rich theology of family. <laughs> We're all brothers and sisters in Christ. Right, I mean, exactly. yeah, and that, yeah. I mean, and that ties into the theology of adoption and uh, church. So I really think that 
that if we're going to be holding up, um, you know, you know, any kind of really form of intimacy, uh, yes, we're called to be friends, but really the New Testament calls uh, all of us to love us in each other in what way? As sisters, as brothers. Yeah, and as family. family. Yeah, as family. Yeah. Which, um, which, by the way, I think that points to, which I think in the conversation has been missing in the past several decades when it comes to sexuality. Uh, in a sense, we're getting very pragmatic, mm-hmm. but I really feel like how the local church has been left out of the picture. And I think that is why maybe in the past some some organizations and, and ministries might have kind of floundered was because it really left, in my view, uh, left the church out of the picture, which meant there was no spiritual headship and guidance theologically and biblically. God is a genius storyteller, and the evidence of this is threaded throughout Scripture. In Christianity Today's new show, Holy Curiosity with me, Kat Armstrong, we explore storied connections threaded throughout Scripture from the Old Testament to the New. Our first miniseries, Connecting Dinah and the Woman at the Well, welcomes experts like Drs. Tim Mackey and Diane Landberg to give us insight and context into the physical location and meaning of these two stories. These stories will spark holy curiosity in your own faith, because once you see these connections, you can't unsee them. God wastes no person, place, or thing. Listen and subscribe to Holy Curiosity with Kat Armstrong on your favorite podcast platform. Okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to flip to the other side of kind of the coin here, because you alluded to this earlier, and I want to explore it a little bit with you. It was your remark about, um, in effect, in the midst of, you know, being in the right place, there are some people who don't show grace to people made in the Imago Day. And, um, and I want to kind of get at this, perhaps, again, a little bit through a back door, but I think it's an important point. You know, Romans 1 is a really important text in these conversations, and uh, – and what often happens in Romans 1 is, see, the example is is a same-sex relationship. That's how bad things have gotten. That's normally the way it's framed. Right. And, and then what I do when I handle this passage is I say, well, you got to keep reading on. <laughs> exactly. Because there's this huge list of sins that people commit that make us Ultimately, the argument is uh, revealed in chapter three. We all sin and fall short of the glory Amen. of God, and and the rebuke that comes at the end of the chapter is not in the singular. People who do these things, yes, and, and I and I tease people who are afraid of grammar. Now, sometimes you learn grammar for a reason. You know, it, it can help you understand what's going on. It's yep. not this thing, you know, that they go on into these, and it's referring to the list that's just that they've just walked through so that the point of the passage is we all have this need for God we all struggle in various areas and somehow we have managed to make this sin its own separate super duper category if I can say it that way um, at the expense of other things in that list which God is also um, urging us not to be involved with and, and that we need to separate ourselves from. That's just a general comment, and that is an open door. Walk through it. <laughs> oh, man. I, I I 100% agree with you, or I guess I should say agree with you because I think you're being – you're reading Scripture, you know, as, as you do always so well, Dr. Bach. I mean, and, and it's exactly what you're doing. You're just saying what Scripture says. I mean, looking at Romans 1, it's certainly – 
verse 26 and 27 is toward the end, but there are, what, uh, 28, 29, 30, 31, right? So four more uh, verses after that, or uh, f- five more, 30, verse 32, right, um, that come after that, which which honestly I see, I mean, from starting from verse 18, he's, Paul, I mean, who's just such an amazing orator and, and writer and, and so logical in his uh, writing, just begins verse 18, 19, and it's kind of like building and building and building. Well, the crescendo, right, I'm, I'm, I'm a pianist, and so I, I love classical music. The crescendo is not at verse 26 and 27. The crescendo, the climax, is really toward the end. When he begins, he just almost kind of vomits out all of these other sins, uh, like malice and, um, you know, gossiping, slandering, hated, you know, boastful, and then it was disobedient to my parents. You know, Dr. Bach, when I read this, I was in prison. At the, I mean, this is my first time ever. I didn't read anything, and I happened to fall, come across Romans 1. And of that whole list of, you know, from Romans 1, 18 through 32, the thing that stuck out to me most wasn't 26 and 27, that that I was, you know, doing what was unnatural according to Paul. For me, what stuck out most was that I was disobedient to my parents. Hmm. I mean, they, I was so cruel to them. I mean, of course, as a prodigal, mm-hmm. I justified my ways. And that's why I wanted to write my first book with my mom, because I wanted to write from my perspective them and show how, not justify my actions, but to show why, because parents so many times are like, "What? why is my prodigal doing this to me? I felt like the victim. Of, of course, it was wrong. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I, when I was off drugs, finally, and I was sober, um, God just cleared my mind that I not only disobeyed God, but I was disobeying my parents. And mm-hmm. that struck me. And and I, from what I remember, Romans 1 Toward the end, that's one of the last things. So you're totally right. Paul was not elevating homosexuality in my mind to be the worst sin. Of course, we know sexual sins are in a different category because it's sitting against the whole ark body, against the Holy Spirit, which the temple of the uh, Holy Spirit. Uh, but it is from here. He's just he's actually listing a whole bunch of other sins, which I mean it. it He's really climaxing at that point and saying, this is how how bad all of humanity are, not just how individuals turn into you know, gay people or turn into having same-sex attractions, but this is all humanity that, that God has uh, you know, put up with in a sense. And finally, as you say in Romans 3, where it gets to that point where all have sinned, not just the Gentiles, Romans 1, but the Jews in, in Romans 2, but everyone in Romans 3. Um, but then, which then leaves an open door for uh, the beautiful gospel, which I love, Romans 5, that, uh, which I think is a perfect example of how, how my parents loved me while I was weak or powerless, while I was still, I love that part, still a sinner, right? Mm-hmm. And while I was, so I wasn't just weak, I wasn't just uh, a, still a sinner, I was his enemy, and God still loved me. And, and, and so my parents... We're able to understand that grace and then extend that grace to me that they love my gay, they they love their gay son, um, not in the way that the world says just love, which means accept not only them but accept their behavior, but love in the way what I would call biblical love, uh, the love in the way that God loved while we were weak, while we were still sinners, and while we were 
his enemies. Um, and I so, think it's key uh, in thinking about this that it makes all the difference in the world whether I approach someone as we're thinking about you know, sharing the gospel and asking people to think about what the gospel is about. If I come to someone and say, well, I'm in a better place than you are, by which I mean I am in a better place than you are, not through the grace of God, versus saying, we're all in the same place. We all have the same need. And uh, what what God has shown me about life is something I deeply believe because I love you uh, could also be of benefit to you. I, I think the the platform from which we approach people is very, very important for uh, for how we represent the gospel. There's a wonderful passage in 1 Peter 3. Um, another part of the passage is actually more famous. It's the text about, you know, uh, be prepared to set Christ apart in your hearts, uh, and be, to give a defense for the hope that is in you, you know, and do so with gentleness and respect. But then it goes on, and it, it talks about Jesus' death as the justification for why you do this. And then it says, uh, in effect, it says, and that's why Christ died for you, which is the reminder that, that the reason we do this is because we remember where we've come from and, what, and who it is who has, who has changed our lives. Of course, that's the story of grace and the story of God that does it. And, and we all have the same need and the same starting point, and we all have on offer the same, the same opportunity to have God lift us up out of wherever we are, whatever our, whatever our faults are, whatever our sins are, and, and experience the restoration uh, back to what God created us to be as a result. And, uh, and I think that, that approaching people on that basis is, is the healthiest way, if I can say it that way, to engage them with the gospel. Amen. Amen. I, I, I totally agree. I, I think um, if we don't begin there, and then it'll totally come across as I'm better than you or, mm. you know, fuller than thou. And, and recognizing that the same grace that was given to me is the same grace that I want you to see you receive from God yourself. Um, and, and I think, you know, when my parents tell uh, their testimony, uh, like, for example, my mom, um, it wasn't until she recognized that she was a sinner herself that then she was able to love me because I was a sinner like her. Mm-hmm. And uh, she couldn't separate before. I mean, I guess it, it kind of comes back down to ontology. She could not separate. In, in her mind, I came out of the closet, I rejected the family. And she saw that as just, especially for Asian uh, mother, to reject the families, probably the, you know, the... That, heart- is, the, that is the unforgivable <laughs> sin. <laughs> right, exactly. Yeah, yeah. So she could not, and, and particularly, it was her son rejecting her, the mom. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, she took it very personally. Um, as a typical tiger mom, she, she will say that, <laughs> that she was. And uh, she was, was growling as a result. Yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> and she could not love me anymore, hmm. but she wanted to. So she was this. She had this struggle, and then you know. So she, you know, as you know in the story, uh, a minister of all things gave her a book on homosexuality, which shared her the, the gospel, mm-hmm. and that that she recognized first and foremost that she was a sinner. And so once she realized that, she was able to. And, you know, we have the saying that, of course, I recommend people don't say it, just do it. <laughs> it's the phrase, love the sinner, hate the sin, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, it's 
there can be it can be twisted and distorted. I mean, there's this you know God loves us when we were, we were enemies, and God you know loved us and loved the world. So there's there's this, and not to separate though. I'm not trying to be gnostic and trying to separate sin and the sinner, uh, but but she was able. Uh, I mean, gnostic in a sense that you know the sin does affect the sinner, uh, but she was then able to uh, then hate what I was doing, but still see uh, that. I was her son and that she could still love me and hope that I would then come to a better place. And at that point, when she came to know Christ, that I too would accept the grace, just as you were saying, um, that God extended to her. Now, the interesting thing is, in thinking about this, and uh, I think this is another part of this that we don't think about enough, is, uh, and we're back to almost where we started, which is you care for a person and you love for a person because they are made in the image of God. Yeah. That brings them worth and respect. Yes. That is, um, if I can say it this way, and it may sound too stark, irregardless of what they've done, that yeah. the, the basis for loving the enemy isn't because their performance sheet commends them to you, okay? <laughs> All right? Uh, it's, it, it, it's because there is an inherent connection of what the person was created to be and what, I will say it this way, what they have the potential to be. Mm. Okay, um, that is different from who they currently are, and the gospel is the anecdote for that. Amen. And if you if you can step in with the gospel as the anecdote for that, and show the way in which God loves the person because they're made in the image of God, and has and has taken the the steps to deal with what has left them short. At the same time, you have the opportunity to turn them from being a debtor. That's actually oftentimes what sin means: is that I'm in debt um, into a debtor, into being someone who has received something that takes them out of that place of debt. And uh, uh, and I just think I think what happens is we actually this is ironic. We make the same mistake that the same-sex advocate makes and that we make their identity their sexuality. <laughs> exactly. Okay? Exactly. A- and when you do that, when you yeah. do that you, you've actually gone to the same space yep. and the same place. And what we're supposed to do is to recognize that this person, despite their failures and their falling short, has the potential under the grace of God to be something that they have not been. Exactly. And 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 so we respond to them accordingly. So we can either think about who they are and get who they are currently and get stuck there or we can think about the possibility of what God can do with this person. Right. And I think that will change the way you think about relating to someone. Yeah. That that's exactly right. I I 100% agree. Um, we can. It's it's understandable. Not right, but it's understandable why people who don't follow Christ, who don't hold to script any scriptural authority, who are unbelievers, um, why they would conflate sexuality with personhood. That's I I get that, and mm-hmm. and I'm, um, I, I bemoan it, but I understand that. But what really uh, frustrates me is just like what you're saying is then Christians will do that. Mm-hmm. Well, we will say, look, well, look at those, you know, the, the gay community, lesbian community, how, you know, they make their sexuality who they are. And yet, when we see a gay person, how do we see them as? We see them by their sinful behavior, like alone, like nothing else. And like you say, we forget that 
this individual, though who has yet to know Christ, is still an image bearer of God. This person uh, has been created in his image. And, and if this person puts their faith in Christ, they, you, like, like you say, they have that potential to then be like Christ. They will be like Christ. Uh, and we need to, I believe, uh, stop viewing uh, same-sex behavior um, as the only lens through which we see those in the gay community. And I'm not at all saying that we need to ignore or treat trivially uh, this sinful behavior. I just don't think that we need to elevate it as the first thing, because this is something that I often hear when I speak, speak at churches. Um, they will ask, I have this gay friend um, or a gay coworker. Um, how do I tell them? And I'm like, tell them what? <laughs> you know, well, this is sin. And I'm like, well, why does this have to be the first thing that you want to tell them? Mm-hmm. You know, how about first build a relationship with them, get to know them first? If, if you have no, what I would call relational capital, how are you able to talk about some really controversial things? For example, what you know the world sees as religion, what we see as the gospel, but mm-hmm. that's offensive to the world. So you need to have some relational capital, in a sense, to build some trust so they can listen. So I'm like, first, just get to know the person. But the second thing is not that we would tell them that they're living in sin. The second thing is talk to them about God, the existence of God, and Jesus Christ, his son, who is known to be a historical individual, and talk about that reality, uh, they will definitely try to bring it around to the ethics of same-sex relationships, whether it is sin or not. I think it's okay. I mean, as you know, Dr. Bach, so many times the Pharisees and Sadducees and scribes try to corner Jesus with questions. You know, they wanted a yes or no answer. And Jesus, being God, just... He did his what he knows how to do best, and he sometimes was silent. Only a few times he was silent. He sometimes answered questions with a question. He sometimes gave an answer to a question that they, that did, they didn't even ask. He reframed the question. He totally reframed the question. Yeah. Why? Because I believe it was because God, Jesus, he knew that the question they were asking was really irrelevant. It really wasn't the important thing. And he then reframed it to what was the most important thing, which is the coming of the kingdom of God. And in the same way, when people ask, do you think this is sin? I know that even if I convince this individual that this behavior is sin, they're still not saved. Mm -hmm. So I want to then point them to the only means through which we can be reconciled to God, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. Is that going to be easy? No. But I think there are ways to then kind of point it around uh, and bring it to that. Like, I mean, I think it's sometimes okay to deflect. You're not lying. I, you know, here's a few things. Like, So if someone says, do you think this is sin? And oftentimes it's not in that nice tone. It's usually kind of a more kind of argumentative. You mean you really think this is sin? Right. Do you think this is sin? Exactly. I think it it depends on who you know. If it isn't someone you know well, you could just say, uh, deflect and and say, you know, I value getting to know you more than debating. Can we celebrate our similarities, tolerate our differences? Or you could say, I know you don't even believe in God, so what does it matter what God thinks yet? Let's first talk about the existence of God, because I think that's more important than what God thinks yet. And I, I think whatever way you can bring it around, you can even ask, how do you define you know, sin? How do you define being gay? And then 
I really believe that a good apologist, a good evangelist, because I think evangelist and apologist is basically, uh, you know, very similar. I think a good evangelist, a good apologist is one who is a good question asker, who knows how to ask good questions. So when they ask, do you think that this is sin? Well, how do you define sin? And then I can get in this whole conversation about morality. How do you define what is right or wrong? And I mean, when, when you do that, I think you've just de-escalated the moment and forced everyone or the two of us into a deeper conversation as opposed to just this yes or no question. You've brought it down. And when you're down here, I think you have more of a capability than to share God's truth and point people to Christ. Yeah, I often say that, that the challenge of the gospel in our time, particularly as our culture gets less biblical, is that on the one hand you're issuing an invitation, but that invitation does have a challenge in it because you've got to recognize certain things about yourself. Yeah. And in the midst of that, it, um, you, you can't critique someone and expect it to be received unless they know you, they, that you care about them. Yeah. That, and and so, um, so establishing that ground of care that says, the person who's saying this to me, I already know, has engaged me in such a way that I know they care about me. They wouldn't be telling me this unless they cared. And so now that ups the ante in terms of paying attention to what it is that's being said because it's coming out of a good place, you know. Yeah. And they understand it's coming out of a good place. Yeah. And 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 so building that's important. My, my my remark, it's like your remark about being a good questioner is is that the really good evangelist and apologist is actually a good listener. Mm, they yes. are they are getting they're getting what I call a good spiritual GPS reading on the person that they're interacting with, where they're coming from, what motivates them, what their values are, why they hold to those things. There actually may be things in their past that cause them to hold to those things, that kind of thing. If you can find that out in the midst of your conversation, just getting to know someone, that's worth knowing. Yes, and so. Um, uh, so, so I think that sometimes we have so equipped people in the church to to say what our message is and to tell that we're mm. quick on the trigger, you know. Yes. And a little James one can be helpful, you know. Um, mm. Be be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. Um, and when you apply that in these kinds of contexts where you're having what will be difficult conversations and where you'll be challenged about how to respond, th this ability to step back and kind of go, well, let's let's not go there yet, okay? L let's think about this. But it, it's like uh, when you were talking earlier about Jesus reframing the question, I immediately jumped to the Good Samaritan, which is something we talked about earlier. Because the yeah. question was, who is my neighbor? And then I tell yes. people, he's really asking a different question. The question he's really asking is, aren't there some people who are not my neighbor, who I don't yeah, have to exactly, pay attention to? Because right. he was testing him, right? Yeah, right. exactly. He was testing him, and that's what he, he, wanted, he wanted to not have to pay attention to certain people. Exactly. And the whole point of the parable is be like the Good Samaritan. So the question is not who is my neighbor, who is or isn't my neighbor. The real question is, who are you? You know, <laughs> what, are you what are you doing? How are you relating to people? And you want to relate to people in a way that you are the good Samaritan, where you show you care. Now, granted, the situation in the parable is pretty transparent. Someone's been abused, and he goes in and meets and helps them out. I mean, so that it's not the same situation when you're talking to someone about you know a, a sin that they're engaged in. But the principle's the same, which is I'm here 
to love you and to care for you and to try and show you that the way in which you're viewing life, which is that your identity is totally wrapped up in your sexuality, is actually blurring what your real identity is mm. yep. and what your real potential in your identity is. And there, and if and it, and if you can see that, you can have a completely different kind of life than the than the life you're having now, and um, probably a bad thing to say as a Christian. I'm willing to bet you it's a better life. You know, <laughs> um, you know uh, th- that's what we're saying to people. Yes, yeah, yeah, I, and and that's that really hits the nail on the head. One of my talks, and uh, I just call the Christian response, um, where I end that, um, and I use the example of my parents, they were not hitting me over the head with, you're living in sin, you need to change, you're going to go to hell, none of that. Really what they did, and they actually really didn't even bring up that I was living in sin, that same-sex relationships are sinful. They simply just lived the life as a godly man, as a godly woman, and I saw Christ in them. So as I say, you know, I end my talk in this, that I did not leave pursuing same-sex relationships, but I left it because I I saw something better. I saw that following Christ is better than pursuing same-sex relationships. I saw that, you know, following Christ was better than anything that this world has, has, has to offer, and I think we need to live it, and we need to, before we communicate that, we got to live it, and people need to see that. So I think that's really important that before we preach the gospel, we really got to live that gospel, because if we try to preach it and we're not living it, then people will really see right through us. Yeah, sometimes when we show it, that is able to penetrate a phaser shield that when we say it, the phaser shield mm-hmm. goes up. And uh, and so, well, Chris, our, believe it or not, our time's gone. Uh, <laughs> and we run actually a little over time, which is okay. Uh, but I want to thank you for coming and talking with us about this. I'm sure it's not the last conversation we'll have about this because this has always been a good exchange that we've been able to have here on the table. And I do thank you for taking the time to be with us today. Thank you so much for having me on again, Dr. Bach. Yeah, it's a pleasure, and we thank you for being uh, with us on the table. We hope you'll be with us again soon. If you have a topic that you'd like to for us to consider for a future episode, please feel free to email us at the table at dts.edu. That's the table at dts.edu. Uh, that at is, of course, the ampersand sign. And, uh, and we'll uh, take your topic under advisement because we'd love to discuss what you're interested in having us discuss. Again, we thank you for being a part of the table, and we hope you'll join us again soon. Thanks for listening to The Table Podcast. For more podcasts like this one, visit dts.edu slash the table. Dallas Theological Seminary. Teach truth. Love well.